And by the way, one of these days, every person within the sound of my voice will give an accounting. Whether you are saved or whether you are lost, you will give an accounting for your service. Someday, the stewardship of your time, your talents, your possessions, your influence will be measured. And at the judgment of the just, you'll be rewarded accordingly. At the judgment of the lost, you will be rewarded accordingly with wrath. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl has been addressing biblical prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled in his series, God's Prophetic Schedule. Today's sermon is entitled, From Here to Eternity. We will be in the book of Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And today, we will evaluate the contrast in the lives of the rich man and Lazarus in verses 19 through 21. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. Would you take God's infallible, inerrant, authoritative, eternal word and turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 16. If you're new to the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's the third book in the New Testament. If you're here for the first time, I've been doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. When we're done, we'll go back to a verse-by-verse exposition of another book of the Bible. Now, this is message number 27 in this series. And if you want to hear the other messages, you can download the Search the Scriptures app and listen to them at your leisure or go to communitybiblechurch.us. Now, we started studying this series on the end times, beginning with the rapture of the church, when God's people are physically, literally caught up into heaven. It will be followed by a seven-plus-year time known as the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. It will culminate with Christ's literal, physical second coming to the earth. He'll rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And then, as we begin to turn a corner today, we'll begin to look at eternity future, what it will mean for the believer and for the unbeliever. Now, our passage is probably familiar to many of you. It concerns a rich man and a poor man. A rich man who was lost and he dies and instead of meeting God as a forgiven person, he meets God in an unforgiven state and he's under God's wrath. Whereas the poor man who is named Lazarus, he was a believer, he'd been forgiven and when he died, he goes to a place called Abraham's bosom, paradise. Now this account drives home the truth that there are only two possible destinations when people leave this world. And that's important because not everyone believes that. The atheist says there is no heaven, there is no hell. The agnostic says, I don't know if there's a heaven or a hell. The Jehovah's Witness believes that the grave is hell itself. The Mormon believes there is a hell, but eventually all who are in hell get out of hell and are delivered into heaven. The Seventh-day Adventist, well, he believes that lost people go to hell, but they are annihilated. They are immediately burned up and extinguished like burning straw and will no longer exist. The Roman Catholic believes for the church member that he will log some time in purgatory, finishing suffering for his sin, a 12th century man-made doctrine found nowhere in Scripture, but eventually he'll be posited into hell. There's a myriad of beliefs all over the map, but what matters is what the Scripture says. 
Now, death is a very real subject, and very often when you speak to someone about death, they want to immediately change the subject. But I want to tell you, if you're not ready to die, you're really not ready to live. Now, many people think they are ready to die. They have a false view of what happens at death. But you need to make sure that your view syncs with Scripture. And sadly, today, many people don't care. They're more interested in the origin of the species than they are in the destiny of the species. But God is clear. We didn't come from the monkeys. God gives man more dignity. We were made in his imago Dei, in his image. Moses will write, The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, a living nephesh, a living soul. We are different. You never see animals seeking after the living God. Man lives forever and ever. God alone has eternality, but when God created you, he made you to live forever and ever and ever. And after you die, because God breathed into you the breath of life, your life will continue endless, timeless, measureless, forever and ever and ever and ever. In fact, Solomon will write in Ecclesiastes 3, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity into our hearts. And that's why wherever you go in the world today, people have a sense that there's some kind of life after this body expires because God wrote eternity into your hearts. Now, on this particular passage of Scripture, Jesus pulls back the curtain of eternity and he gives us a glimpse into the next life. And of course, only Jesus and the writers that the Spirit of God inspired can speak with infallible, unerring authority, unerring authority. And so what we need to know is what does the scripture say? Not what do I think, but what does God say? For he wrote only one book, the Holy Bible. He did not write the Quran. He did not write the Book of Mormon. He did not write the Upanishad, the Vedas. He did not author a single encyclical letter. The only thing that God inspired was these 66 books. Now, before we get into the weeds of this text of Scripture, let me just say that very often you will hear pastors and theologians debate, is this a parable or is this just historical narrative? Is this an actual event that took place or is it a parable? And the argument is, is that because the word parable is not technically used, that it mustn't be a parable. But I don't think that's the case. If you're going to be consistent, if you look at Luke 15, it opens up with a parable. And then he goes on and this and this and this through the prodigal of uh, the prodigal son and right into chapter 16. So a text doesn't have to say it's a parable to be a parable. And it certainly has all the characteristics of a parable. But whether it's a parable or not, Certainly, if it is a parable, it's the only parable where Jesus actually names a person. But whether it's a parable or not, Jesus, who is the truth, only uses truth to teach the truth. So it changes absolutely nothing. So don't get lost in that silly little argument. And so what we're looking at this morning is factual because Jesus describes it. And he, as a master teacher, addresses three great issues in this portion of Scripture. Three issues that we will all face life, death, and eternity. And I suppose everything else is a subset of that. Luke chapter 16, I want to begin reading in 19. If you have a Bible, follow along. If you don't have one, come to meet the pastor, and you'll be gifted one. Luke 16, starting in verse 19. Now there was a rich man 
And he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, enjoying himself in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs, or you could say a little morsel, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I I beg, I request you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now, as you can see, this passage is preceded by the parable of the unrighteous steward found in uh, the first 15 verses. And of course, it's the Pharisees' reaction to that parable that leads Jesus into this narrative section. And to really appreciate the warning that Jesus gives, you have to link the two passages together. And I hope before we're done, you'll see why. And so contextually, they fit together. Notice how the chapter opens, Luke 16 and verse 1. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a steward or a manager, you could say. And this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. Now, our steward had an important position in the first century. He had a wide range of powers, but among other things, he uh, oversaw his bosses, his curios, his master's affairs. And so in this parable, Jesus taught how we should use material goods in order to make a spiritual difference. And it's important we understand it again because it's the lead-in for understanding the rich man who died and went to hell. Look, if you will, at verse 2. And he summoned him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be steward. Someone had reported to the boss that this man was squandering his master's goods. There was only one other place in the New Testament where this word squandering is used, and it's in the previous chapter in Luke 15 of the prodigal son who squandered his estate with loose living. So clearly his master does not believe that the accounting will exonerate this man, but he wants to confirm what he believes to be true, and so he speaks here that you can no longer be steward. Now, this guy knows he's guilty. He knows he's going to lose his job. He knows he's going to be out on the street, but he needs to close up shop, so to speak, before he is released. And so as the manager, he 
gathers together his various master's debtors, knowing that he's about to be officially fired. And by the way, one of these days, every person within the sound of my voice will give an accounting. Whether you are saved or whether you are lost, you will give an accounting for your service. Someday, the stewardship of your time, your talents, your possessions, your influence will be measured. And at the judgment of the just, you'll be rewarded accordingly. At the judgment of the lost, you will be rewarded accordingly with wrath. And we will see that. Someday, each of us will give an account of our stewardship. As good stewards, for instance, of the manifold grace of God, employ your gift in serving one another. You have been given a gift. The day God saved you, he gifted you. You say, I don't even know what it is. Of course you don't. You're so new in Christ. A baby, when they're born, you don't know what gifts they have, whether it's mechanical or intellectual or athletic until they grow. But as you grow in Christ, there'll be a special area in your life that God will use. The sad thing is I'll meet Christians who've been saved for three decades, and they don't even know that there are spiritual gifts, much less what theirs are, because they've never grown. And that's why the discovery class in the prior hour, and it's offered both hours, is so important. So here's this guy. He's going to give a full account in verse 3. And the steward said to himself, what am I to do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. That is, maybe he's too weak or feeble because he was lazy and he never really did a hard day's work in his life. Or maybe just the idea of manual labor was repulsive to him. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Now, I find it interesting that he says, I'm ashamed to beg, but when he gives the accounting and he goes through the squandering and the theft, he doesn't say, I'm ashamed that I've stolen. Verse four, I know what I will do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. He knew that he would give an accounting of his management, and then the master would see how he had cooked the books and he would at that point be outright fired. So this man's a real schemer, he's a real crook. He's reasoning to himself, I'm gonna give a full accounting. I'll no longer be in the employment of my boss. I'll no longer have a place to stay as the head steward. And so I need to take care of me. I need to make some friends so that when I lose this position, I'll have some place to go. Verse 5, notice how his dishonest scheme unfolds. Now he sum- and he summoned each one of his master's debtors. Now the debt here in verses 6 and 7 is obviously agriculture in nature, indicating that the master either had tenant farmers or he had wealthy businessmen that he was engaged with. More likely based on what follows, he probably had both. So there's a long list of clients that the steward was responsible for. And God, of course, only highlights the first two. Look at verse five. And he summoned each one, as you and I, each one of us will give an account, each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? So he's systematically taking the list and going through this uh, inventory of names, and he's going to offer a reduction plan. Now, the question is irrelevant. He asks the question, how much do you owe my master? He knew precisely 
what each of them owed his master. But he asks the question, I think emotionally, manipulatively, so that when he gives this big reduction, there's a sense of, wow, I owe this much, but um, now I only owe this much. How much do you owe my master? And he said, 100 measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Now, the new New American Standard says jugs, 100 jugs. I prefer measures because it causes you to be a little more reflective. At least in the Western mind, a jug usually is a gallon or smaller. But in the Middle East mind, a jug was a large container. Technically, it's a liquid measure that in our English way of thinking, it would be 8.75 gallons. So he owns 100 batos, 100 measures. That's 875 gallons of olive oil. The NIV, which does a lot of paraphrasing, they just round it up and they render it 900 gallons. I'm told it would take 150 olive trees. That would be a rich man's grove to produce that much oil. And of course, in the first century, that much oil would be worth 1,000 denarii. And most of you know that a denarius represented a single day's pay for the average laborer. And so Jesus here is describing a sum of money that represents three years of work. And in these two examples he gives, these debtors are obviously not day laborers or tenant farmers. These are men with a large debt. These are wealthy businessmen. Now, certainly there may be people on the list that are much smaller in terms of their uh, intersection with this master, but these two are very wealthy. Take your bill, the text says, and sit down quickly and write 50. What a break. Imagine the relief. Imagine the gratitude, imagine the appreciation that he now owes 500 denarii less. Now remember, Jesus is going to refer to him in the text as an unrighteous steward. He is renegotiating these debts, and so 100 jugs, 100 measures of oil are now written down to 50. Notice further in verse 7 as he continues with these discounts. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now, the NASB, here they write a hundred cores. And that's not bad because, again, it forces you to think. It's the Greek word koros. And in the new edition of the NAS, they transliterate the word. You transliterate a word like baptizo becomes baptism. When you take the letters of a, a language and you just take the letters of the receptor language and translate it accordingly. And so a koros was the largest Hebrew dry measure that they had. It equaled about 10 bushels. And so we're talking here about 1,000 bushels of wheat, and of course, in the first century, they would say that took about 100 acres to produce. And so their steward tells him to take your bill and write 80. That's 20% off, uh, equivalent to 600 denarii off. That's two years of the average pay. And again, the discount here is very generous. And in each case, in their own hands, take your bill and write it. That's significant. 
because in essence, he's tearing up the old contract. He is writing a new contract that he's going to stamp with his ring and approve. So when he goes to his master, he can't do anything because they have a new contract that the master now has to honor. And so the assumption here is that the steward goes through this list, each one of his master's debtor, and again, he's hoping to get return favors later on. I've got to take care of my future. I've got to think about me. I don't like doing manual labor. I'm ashamed to beg. I need to make some new friends. And so he uses his authority to rip off his master. And again, this is significant in light of the application Jesus is going to make for us. Look now at verse 8 in your Bible. And his master praised, some of your texts say complimented or commended. His master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. I need to say that verse 8 has created a lot of consternation and confusion in the hearts of a lot of people. Please understand, Jesus, the master here, who puts these words in the mouth of the master is not praising or admiring him for his dishonesty. He's praising him because he acted shrewdly, that the old papers were destroyed and new accounts were made and that he wouldn't even have any legal recourse. He's not commending him for unethical behavior any more than when Jesus describes himself as a thief in the night that he is in nature a thief. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus never praises unethical behavior. So on the one hand, he's unrighteous for squandering his Lord's good. On the other hand, he's very shrewd in that he is making some new relational friends by the way he treats them. Now notice what Jesus says by conclusion. For the sons of this age, you could write over there a believer. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Excuse me, the sons of this age, an unbeliever, are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than are believers, the sons of light. The sons of this age, unbelievers versus the sons of light. There is the contrast. And it's important contrast, and we need to follow this portion of Scripture because it becomes key to understanding the rich man who dies and goes to hell. So stay with me. And so here's this guy who's shrewd. And Jesus is saying, listen, the people of this world are more shrewd in the way they deal with each other than are God's people. So he pointedly applies it to us. Look at verse 9, if you will. And I say to you, now he's talking to the disciples. I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, or you could render it the mammon of unrighteousness, or by unrighteous wealth. wealth, And ultimately, all wealth is unrighteous. In the end, every dollar is dirty. The dollar that came from your hand may have come from an abortion clinic. It may have come from someone who just got drugs, and now they're buying some product you have. So in the end, it's all tainted. But Jesus is saying, listen, use worldly riches. Use the wealth of unrighteousness, literally, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Make friends using worldly riches, then when it fails, and someday it will fail, it will fail for you either when you die, for you cannot take it with you, or it will fail for all of us if Jesus comes back, because then your money will be worthless and you won't need it. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to exercise the same shrewdness 
and dealing with your money, the money that God's entrusted to you, and the way that this lost man did in making worldly friends. Now hold that thought. It's going to fail. The King James, interestingly, says not when it fails, but when he fails. And they do that because they're trying to uh, capture the aspect of death. But every Greek text all says when it fails. In either case, the point is, is when you die, your money isn't going to do you any good. I heard about a man who was very wealthy, and he had told his wife, you know, I, I've always heard it said, you can't take it with you, but I think I need to try. She said, what do you mean? This is what I want you to do. He was sick. He was in bed. He only had days to live. He said, go there into the closet. There's a big box. It's filled with silver and gold and dollars. He said, I want you to put it in the room right above my head there in the attic. And he said, I want you to attach a rope to it. And when I die on the way up, I'm going to grab it and take it with me. <laughs> Well, she thought that was kind of silly, but she said, well, okay, if that's what you want me to do. So she went up in the attic, the room right above his head, and put all the wealth up there with a rope on it, with a hook on it, so he could just grab it. And then he died. The undertaker came and took his body away, and she said, you know, maybe it worked. So she went up in the attic, and there it was, still sitting there. She said, I knew I should have put it in the basement. <laughs> all of your money, all of it, when it fails, because it will fail someday, the moment you die, it won't do you any good, but you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead, and that's the lesson of this. When it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Just as the unrighteous steward by the use of his master's money made temporal friends, Jesus is saying, I want you to take God's money because it's not yours. It's all God's. And I want you to use it in a way that you can make eternal friends. You're not going to live here forever, but God wants you to know that you can make friends up there by the way you use your money down here. Revelation 14, we studied it not long ago, and we looked at that phrase in the 13th verse, that your works follow you. That as Christians, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Don't think for one skinny minute you can earn or merit heaven. If you think that, you'll die and go to hell. It says you're still lost. But once you are saved, if you're available to the Spirit of God in you to work and minister through you, in eternity, God rewards you, and so your works follow you. And so Jesus is saying, when it fails, they, that is, those who have gone on before us, which, by the way, gives us a little glimpse into heaven. I have often been asked in the Bible line or at funerals, will my loved one recognize me? And the answer right here is yes. They will receive you. They, oh, there's Joe. I'm here because Joe gave to that particular outreach, and I heard the gospel, and I'm born again in heaven because of the way he used his money. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 027. One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, well, what about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question both biblically 
and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures.